Thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast, a production of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In this episode, Gail Rutz, Simone Drogi, Emily Rao, and Professor Melissa Homestead discuss their ongoing work on the Complete Letters of Willa Cather, a digital scholarly edition. On this episode of the Plain State Podcast, we will sit down with two women who do a lot of important work for the Willa Cather Archive, which you can find at cather.unl.edu. We will ask them exactly what the archive is and what their work with the archive consists of. Um, but first, to briefly introduce myself, my name is Gail Rotz, and I am a senior undergraduate here at UNL with majors in dance and English. Um, and I began working at the archive at the start of the 2018 academic year. So I've been with the archive for almost a year and a half, and I will finish out this year and hopefully work there again this summer. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Simone Drogi, and I'm a senior English and history major with minors in women's and gender studies and digital humanities. And I've worked at the Will Cather Archive for almost two years now. Gail and I are both editorial assistants who work on the Complete Letters of Willa Cather, a project of the Willa Cather Archive, which, to use some language from the website, is an endeavor to create a digital scholarly edition of Cather's entire body of correspondence. The project is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and by the Center for Digital Research in the Humanities at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and with the cooperation of Willa Cather Foundation in Red Cloud, Nebraska. There are currently 1,516 letters in the edition. The Complete Letters is an ongoing project updated periodically until its completion. Uh, yes, and how we both found ourselves working at the Willa Cather Archive, um, we both applied to work there um, through UNL's UCARE program, and UCARE stands for Undergraduate Creative Activities and Research Experience. Um, and UCARE is funded in part by gifts from the Pepsi Quasi Endowment and Union Bank and Trust. And um, it supports UNL undergraduates to work one-on-one -on -one with faculty research advisors in research or creative activities. Yes, UCARE is definitely a great opportunity for undergraduates at UNL. So if any undergrads are listening, should definitely take advantage of that. Um, so to transition into what we will mainly be talking about today, we are very excited to have Emily and Melissa with us. Emily Rao is the managing editor of the Willa Cather Archive, and Professor Melissa Homestead is associate editor of the Complete Letters Project. So to start us off, would you two mind introducing yourselves for us? Sure. I'm Emily Rao. Um, as Simone said, I'm the managing editor of the Willa Cather Archive, which is a full-time position in the library on UNL's campus. Um, I also am a PhD candidate in the English department, um, working on my dissertation actively, and uh, I've been working on this project in a couple of different capacities for the past five and a half years now. So, Hi, Melissa Homestead here. I'm a professor of English and program faculty in Women's and Gender Studies. Uh, my research and teaching broadly uh, starts with the late 1700s and into the early 20th century. Willa Cather is the latest author I work on. I work on women's writing and women's authorship. And on the, uh, I'm working on a book, almost done, on Cather's relationship with her partner, Edith Lewis, which will be coming out from Oxford University Press in February 2021. And uh, as associate editor, I participate in the Complete Letters of Willa Cather Project. What specifically do you do on the project, Melissa, like with the complete letters? 
Uh, well, on the complete letters, I have been the lead person in formulating annotation policy. Uh, there are two kinds of annotations. There are many biographies of everybody who is mentioned or addressed in letters, and then also explanatory notes that go with letters. So I have, uh, I helped to devise the policy at the beginning for biographical annotations, wrote a lot of them, edited them. And once we started working through the individual letters, I was responsible for the letters that were held by the Houghton Library at Harvard University, including a lot of Cather's correspondence with her publishers. So we, uh, publishers Houghton Mifflin. So we've moved on now to phase two, and there are going to be more archives, uh, more repositories that we'll be editing letters for. Emily, could you tell us more specifically about your day-to-day -day responsibilities sure. as so, a gene editor? Yeah, when I, I started the working here as an editorial assistant as a graduate student and then got the full-time position like three and a half years ago. So I actually participated in every aspect of the project, which is kind of cool, from scanning letters to even transcribing some, encoding a lot of them. Um, I've written some bio annotations. I've annotated some letters, not nearly as many as Melissa. <laughs> um, and then I also encode all the bio annotations. I review a lot of it, a lot of um, the letter specific annotations. And I also do the final proofreading of letters before I actually physically publish them. So I have on all, the, I have personally proofread all the letters on the Cather archive right now. <laughs> Um, so if you find mistakes, feel free to, you know. <laughs> in a nice um, way. Yeah, in a nice way. So, yeah, so we, uh, well, you guys, well, yeah, Gail and Smoke can speak to this as well, but for those of you in the general public, when we say encoding letters, we mean putting them into um, XML markup and TEI, which is the Text Encoding Initiative, and it's sort of an international standard and guide for encoding documents. And um, we also have our own internal guidelines and schema for working with the documents as well to make sure that everything's done pretty uniformly. Mm -hmm. And each file includes really rich metadata about where the letter is stored and like the physical copy of the letter. Um, and we encode it with information about who it's written to, where it's sent from, the date that it may have been written, which could be arranged depending on how much we can narrow down when Cather doesn't date the letters. <laughs> then we tag all references to people, places, geographic places, and also any referenced works in the text and connect them to larger um, databases for like regularized name, place names with that includes geographic information. And then the, we also connect people to the uh, BIAF database, which has like their regularized names and is used by libraries around the world. So for ordinary non-digital humanities people, you won't see any of this. All of this then interfaces with the kind of software that will publish it and make it look the way that you will see it if you search for letters on the Willa Cather Archive. But all of this is just very important as far as making sure that when people interact with the letters, we have the most accurate information. Even things like tagging names, uh, somebody could have more than one form of their name, or they could just be referred to as, in any particular context, uh, she, right? Mm -hmm. We know who she is. And so that information is all running behind the scenes um, and allows people to interact with the letters in a pretty rigorous way. Yeah. But you don't have to see all of that technical stuff to be able to use the resource. Right. Yeah. But you definitely can still. You can still access the XML on the website, which is also a really useful file. Yeah. Right, right. Some people want to look behind the scenes 
vaccines, some don't. Yes. <laughs> and you can do it. You can do it either way. Exactly. So. People are always super impressed when I tell them I encode things, but then I have to clarify that it's like letters yeah. <laughs> encode like alphabetical letters and not numbers. Yes. I don't know. And, and it's really, <laughs> I don't know it's really intuitive though. I remember yeah. when I first started, I was really nervous because I am technologically challenged. <laughs> um, but yeah, the internal side, as Emily mentioned, with all the instructions, like made it, you know, a really friendly um, way for me to be introduced into the project. And it is really rich and fulfilling um, to be able to learn more about like Cather's life through all the works that she referenced. Like she was such an avid reader, um, mm -hmm. which I find really impressive yeah. a lot of the time. I'm an English professor and I've been doing this for more than 20 years and I don't think I've read half as much as she read. Yeah. And she certainly yeah. read, oh, yeah, yeah, just an incredible range of works. Totally. She only wrote like a couple hours a day, so she had a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, great. So moving on, um, how did you both become interested in Cather studies in the first place? And how long have you been involved with this scholarship? Well, we recently realized that we both read our first Cather book in the same city. Oh, <laughs> which one? Well, I read A Lost Lady first. Yes. In Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah, that, that was, I read it during my master's at Lehigh University in a seminar on mourning and modernism, cool. like M-O-U-R, mourning. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was awesome. And I wrote a seminar paper at that point about the use of iron and steel as like adjectives to describe different types of characters, connecting it to the railroad, because that novel really is a railroad novel, which then became an article, one of my only publications, but then also kind of launched my interest in how the railroads changed space and place and how they show up in literature in America specifically, which is my dissertation yeah. topic. Yeah. So although Cather... The a lost lady isn't in my dissertation because I moved on from that. But Cather makes an appearance, so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't really have much familiarity with Cather till I moved here. I had read two short stories in college, I think. Or maybe just one, actually. I think just Paul's case. Paul's case, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't even realize that was her. Like, I didn't, I didn't remember that that was her until I started working here. And I was like, wait, I read that. Um, but then, yes, after working here for a year, I did an independent study with Andy Jewell, um, who's the editor of the of the whole edition, or the whole archive, mm -hmm. um, and read all of Cather's novels then. And so I've read all of them, more, almost all of them more than once now. So, and Melissa? Uh, so um, I first read Willa Cather in 1980 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, on the recommendation <laughs> of a favorite high school English teacher because I was supposed to write a college admissions essay on, you know, it's 1902 and you're going to invite three people from history to dinner. Um, <laughs> I said, Mrs. Reese, I don't know. Who am I going to invite? So I think you should read Edith Wharton and Willa Cather. I think you'd like them. I skipped the Edith Wharton recommendation, went to Bethlehem Public Library, <laughs> checked out O Pioneers and My Antonia and stayed up like the whole weekend and read both of them through. And I was like, this is awesome. And then I get the World Book Encyclopedia <laughs> off the shelf. And it was the stupidest World Book Encyclopedia article that made it sound like she was nobody. And then she started writing about Nebraska when she moved back to Nebraska, which is totally inaccurate. Um, and so 
And then I didn't apply to the college that had that admissions essay. But <laughs> I went on to college and wrote an honors thesis on Willa Cather. I think by the time I wrote my honors thesis on My Antonia and A Lost Lady, um, I probably read My Antonia about 25 times already. Wow. And I lost track of the number of times I've read My Antonia. Oh, oh, let's see. It's probably at least 20 years ago that I was maybe up to 100 times. I don't know. So I've, I've read it many times. I have a strange, obsessive relationship with it. But uh, so I go back that far, but then I dropped in and out of grad school and ended up becoming a 19th century Americanist and so wandered away from Cather. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Cather conferences for fun, mm -hmm. which was a strange way to have fun. But <laughs> And then I started working on this project on Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. So I got sort of pulled back in a scholarly way to Cather. Mm -hmm. But so yes, I have a very long relationship with Will gather. I can't believe you didn't mention where you went to college in this story. Oh, I went to Smith College, which is where Edith Lewis uh, also went, yes. which explains why I ended up writing that book. But yes. Yeah. And a couple of Cather's nieces, too. Right? Uh, yes. Well, her sister, Elsie, her niece, Virginia Cather, and her niece, uh, Mary Virginia Ald, yeah. all went to Smith College. Cool. And Edith Lewis's niece went to Smith College, too. But anyway. <laughs> what is it that do you think about Cather's writing like drew you to her or made you interested like what qualities um for me it's like the when I don't know sometimes with Cather's books it's her plots and her it all seems kind of simple but then as you read it it's like it gets more and more complex so I noticed that right away with The Lost Lady which is why I wanted to write about it in that class um and but I've noticed it every time I've read a book by her mm -hmm. or anything by her and I often when I'm recommending them to people I often like you tell them that they should linger over the books um which is the best way I can think of to like explain how they really need to be read kind of slowly and thoughtfully because I feel like that's how they're written really thoughtfully in that way um and I really like that my my favorite Cather book is Lucy Gayhart which again, even Catherine says that it's about kind of a silly girl and is a little dismissive about it, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful book and so rich and so heartbreaking and so contemplative. And I absolutely love it. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, strangely, I was first more strongly drawn to O Pioneers than My Antonia. And it was like the sex, death, sin kind of, you know, there's that big melodrama. <laughs> Well, not rock and roll. More, no, no. It was more just. It was just. No, it was more like uh, at the you know the Scarlet Letter, which mm. I really loved in high school. Mm, uh, you know, I was a teenage Presbyterian, and so that whole kind of you know yeah. thing appealed to me. But then my Antonia. I mean, I have such a very complicated relationship with it because there's so much I love about that book, and there's so much that enrages me. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also very complicated. So the first twenty five times, um, I was I was annoyed at the narrator Jim Burden, and I'm still. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm a little more sympathetic to him now because I'm older and I'm nostalgic and I sort of understand him more, but I still, I still find him very annoying, but I, you know, I go back in at various points and suddenly think, oh my God, this is so dark and gothic. I totally <laughs> forgot this, you know, yeah. uh, or at an event in Red Cloud a few years ago, they were reading parts of a variety of her words, uh, her works aloud. And I just remember thinking, well, I totally forgot that she was naming the flowers, like, you know, Galardia. Is yeah. the word Galardia? 
And why Antonia? I forgot, right? So, so I keep going in. I, I mean, I also actually have a very complicated relationship with her because she um, made herself into the exceptional woman who was better than any woman writer except Edith Wharton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work on popular women novelists of the 19th century, the kind of people that she actually directly mocked mm-hmm. in some of her criticisms. Yeah. So I've got a complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. Thank you. To move on, I guess, and circle back to the Letters Project. Um, so um, both of you or one of you, whoever wants to answer, um, for people who may not know, could you maybe explain what the Complete Letters Project is a little bit more in depth and its goals? I think one of the important things to know is that for a long time, uh, because of provisions in Cather's will, uh, scholars had to go read her letters in person uh, because they couldn't be quoted from or published. Mm-hmm. So they would rely on paraphrases of other scholars or have to go travel to read the letters. So in 2013, the selected letters of Willa Cather appeared in print because of some changes in the status of the literary trust uh, controlling the copyrights. Now the letters are in the public domain by operation of law. The law you know, kept all these unpublished manuscripts in copyright until a particular date, then all of the existing manuscripts went into the public domain. So now they're in the public domain, but everyone can now read them for themselves. Mm -hmm. They can still travel to libraries or as they are published on the archive, they can see uh, images of the letters. So it's kind of like going to an archive, but then they don't have to read Willa Cather's handwriting unless they want to read the handwriting (laughs) and contest our interpretations of it. They can do that. Uh, So it allows everyone to read the letters um, anywhere. It's a freely accessible publication project. Mm -hmm. Anything to add, Emily? I don't think so. That sounds good. (laughs) Well, I agree. (laughs) Because you brought up um, the matter of Cather's will, um, Simone and I both wanted to ask... um, just like personally, how you both feel about being involved with the Complete Letters Project, considering Cather did write in her will that she would not like her letters to be published. Um, kind of a, yeah. yeah. I know that was a very, it's, it's a common question, actually, that we get from people, from especially fans and readers. Um, and people sometimes are kind of upset about it, like, which I, I actually find surprising because I sort of feel like um, it's such an amazing and rich resource and it's been so long since she died. And also the family, like remaining family members are supportive of it. All of the organizations that have been working to preserve Cather and her legacy are supportive of the project. Um, and I, so I was honestly surprised when I realized that people would get kind of upset about that and say like, Oh, if she didn't want it. Like, how can you do that? Um, right. But yeah, uh, I guess I understand the impulse behind that. But I do just think it's such a important resource. Then people, it will like already has been really kind of blowing open Cather scholarship in a lot of ways mm-hmm. to just be able to quote them instead of to paraphrase them and then misconstrue things and yeah. take things even more out of context and sometimes quoting already takes things mm-hmm. and it just really gives voice to a lot of especially in like. The history of Cather scholarship to things that people have obscured or suppressed. And I think that's important. Yeah. I, I think that the question of what a dead author wanted is not the basis of scholarship mm. first. 
So I think the idea that we all should only do what the dead author wanted just doesn't make sense mm -hmm. uh, in a scholarly context. Uh, I also think that people have um, wanted to give Cather this special status where she's she got to construct an impervious bubble for herself and have total control over what got outside the bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think if you read her letters, you will find out that that's really not the way that writing and publishing and all of those things works. Mm -hmm. So I think even reading the letters um, gives you a different sense of Cather and maybe take away a little bit of that feeling that somehow um, Cather's being violated because that sense that Cather's being violated, like I said, comes from this notion that she was just totally, absolutely in control and floating above right. all of the messiness of the world, which of course she wasn't. Right. It kind of demystifies her a little bit, maybe. Yeah. I mean, she did a good job of mystifying herself, but I think also that's, that, that was um, a market strategy. You know, that mm. I am the great author. I am above these things is um, a good way to get prizes and be recognized mm -hmm. as a distinguished author. So. Yeah. Um, to speak more about the physical letters themselves, uh, we were wondering if you two could maybe each tell a little story about your first experience reading a Cather letter. Um, sure. My, I, I remember reading some letters from the selected letters when I first got here, but my first like memorable experience, uh, is really when I was encoding the letters and also when I was working on scanning them. The first ones I worked on were the letters to Cather's brother Roscoe's children, actually. His daughters, Virginia, and his twin daughters, Mary, Mar Margaret, and Elizabeth. And so I got to see, I, read, I think I encoded almost all of the letters to them. And so I got to see her and get to know Cather as Aunt Willa, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was really fun and really nice. And stuff, like watched her talk to them in different ways as they all grew up and as they started experiencing different things in life from like going to college and getting getting married and um, visited, like the twins visited Willa Cather and Edith Lewis at their vacation home on Grand Manan mm -hmm. two times and like writing to them about, oh, you remember this person and you can imagine what the cliffs look like and how we miss you and, and saying like Edith misses you too and seeing just like this beautiful, rich life uh, emerging in this person that's like, I, I don't know. I feel like I have I grew an affection for her that I haven't quite gotten rid of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I always kind of, I have a life size cardboard Willa Cather that lives in my office, and she has this little wry smile on her face and looks over my shoulder at what I'm doing. And sometimes I glance at her and think about what she would think about the things that I do during the day. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I see her. She's like, oh, "What are you doing?" <laughs> Well, especially when we're doing things like opi and beers and photoshopping oh, yeah. beer glasses under her hand and the place with pens and things of that nature. How but then other times when I look at her, it's like as Aunt Willa looking at me like, you go, girl. Good job, she's like, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> That is really cute. Yeah. <laughs> Big Willa. Yes. Big Willa. <laughs> That's great. And Melissa, your okay. first well, letter experience. Uh, the first time I read... Um, uh, Willa Cather letter was in 1993. Mm -hmm. So I had, I was going to go back to grad school and I wanted to have sort of a fresh writing sample. And I also wanted to give myself a 30th birthday treat. So there's a long lead up here, but a 30th birthday <laughs> treat. Okay. So I said, I was either going to go to London or Nebraska for oh. my 30th birthday. And <laughs> I decided, I decided on a Willa Cather conference 
in Nebraska as oh my, my 30th birthday present to myself. Oh my uh, and they let you take the conference for like a one credit or something then. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this would just be an opportunity to write something new and to get some feedback. So um, I was writing into the fall. You got to research and write your seminar paper. Um, I was writing um, and I was relying on paraphrases from James Woodruff's biography. And I just wasn't feeling like the paraphrases were right. In fact, he said this one, he paraphrases one letter from Willa Cather to Dorothy Canfield Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dorothy Canfield went before she was Dorothy Canfield Fisher was the daughter of the chancellor of the university when Willa Cather was a student and they became friends uh, and they remained friends, although it was a complicated friendship. <laughs> uh, and uh, so this is before their friendship got pretty complicated in 1902. Um, Willa Cather is... Um, well, anyway, I have to I have to go back a second here. The letter that I wanted to look at was one from later when Willa Cather was working on one of ours and had asked Dorothy Canfield Fisher to read um, the, the novel and proofs and to make sure that the war stuff was good because Dorothy had spent a lot of time in France doing war relief work during World War I. Um, and, um, and Woodruff says that Willa Cather wrote in this letter that one character, a German soldier who's a sniper, was a homosexual. And I thought, I wonder what the word is. So mm-hmm. I had to drive eight hours from Philadelphia up to Vermont, to Burlington, Vermont, mm-hmm. to go read these letters. And as long as I was going to look at the one letter, I was going to read as many letters as I could. I had to take like a couple of days off from work at my paralegal job. <laughs> you stay in a little cheesy motel on Lake Champlain. Or so. I'm sitting there and I'm reading these letters from 1902 when Willa Cather is in Europe. Uh, Dorothy Canfield at that point was working on a PhD in Romance Languages from Columbia University. So she had much better French skills than Willa Cather and she was generally much more cosmopolitan and learned. And so Cather's letters to her, she's very kind of nervous and self-conscious. And there's this letter where she is talking about um, uh, buying underwear in France. You know the letter? It's an infamous letter. And and I was just sitting there in the reading room, Special Collections in Burlington, Vermont, saying to myself, I'm reading a letter where Willa Cather is writing about buying underwear in France. This is really weird. Yeah, and then it it turns out the letter about one of ours, she said that the sniper was a degenerate, which is a very specific word with a specific history that I also Mm. then researched. But much later, I came to realize that the person who uh, was behind the desk at the University of Vermont who paged all of those letters for everyone was actually actually Edith Lewis's great niece. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Which she didn't tell anybody who worked on Cather that she was Edith Lewis's great niece, but she worked in special collections. Mm. At the University of Vermont. So, how did you find out? Uh, because um, uh, I found her mm-hmm. later, and then during your research, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that's a long story, but there you yeah. go. It was a great one, though. <laughs> it's strange to think of Catherine's voice in a letter of being nervous and self-conscious. I think I've built up like a very specific image of yeah. her in my head, and knowing her voice, I always think of her as very confident. Very confident, yeah. Special thanks to Professor Melissa Homestead, Emily Rao, Simone Drogi, and Gail Ross. Plain State is produced by Robert Lipscomb. Post-production by Stephen Ramsey. Music by Shadows on a River. Additional background laughter in this episode provided by Jonathan Cheng.
My name is Matt Gonzalez. On behalf of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast. Tagline forthcoming. <laughs>